When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What will stop the Fed? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing and Happy New Year to all of you. With me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Maggie. It's great to be back. It's great to be back with the Real Vision gang. So I uh, appreciate being here. Yeah, I, I think everyone's we're, we're feeling hopeful, but let's see what happens because 2022 really knocked the stuffing out of a lot of people. But listen, uh, we're two days into the trading year. We had a down day for U.S. stocks yesterday. Not a great way to start. Rebound today. Just broadly, how are you feeling about the markets as we start this new year? Uh, well, great question. Uh, I'll answer uh, not the question you asked, but the question that I want to answer, sure. uh, which is I don't really feel anything <laughs> about the markets. Uh, as you know, we want a pretty a systematic quantitative process here, 42 macro. So um, the summary of, of those processes uh, leads me to continue to be bearish. I mean, as you know, I've been on this program for, for quite some time, uh, espousing our, our bearish bias on risk assets and, and, and really, you know, in the back half of last year on, on bonds as well. Um, you know, it's been, pretty, it's been pretty brutal out there for the past 14 months since we made that pivot. And ultimately, we still think we're, um, you know, at, 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 at the earliest, or sorry, at the latest, maybe in inning six of this bear market. Mm. At the earliest, probably still inning four, four and a half. Yeah, that's making me grimace to hear that. But but it is it is consistent. I know with what we were talking about. Right, last I'm not year trying to scare land. people in January. Yeah. I know everyone's Love coming back. That's right, Gary. Information is power, right? Like we can all of us have to sort of just like try to do what we can in this environment. And I'm laughing because right before we came on, I was in the chat and I asked, "How's everybody feeling?" And JC said, "Cautiously pessimistic." <laughs> Which I think is kind of like uh, sums up <laughs> what a, a lot of us are feeling. So thank you for that, JC. Um, and just a reminder, if you have any questions, comments, just go ahead and put them in the comment section of our website, in the chat on YouTube, or you can tweet us at Real Vision. Um, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. We love hearing from you. So Darius, the Fed seems like it looms large again. Uh, the, the, we got the minutes out from December, gave us a little bit of insight into what they were thinking when they decided to go from 75 basis point hikes to 50. Anything in there that stood out to you? Yeah, no, this is, uh, this is one of those rare days where the Fed minutes are an actual market moving catalyst. Uh, from my perspective, I think there's three main things that I saw in there that pretty much affirm what we've been talking about over the past few weeks at 42 Macro, which is this very underreported hawkish Fed pivot. The Fed pivoted in December, on December 14th, to an incrementally hawkish posture. Um, and, and that part of that pivot is uh, really twofold. One, uh, the obvious cohesion amongst committee members with respect to uh, to their to their dot plot forecasting, both on the policy rate side, but also on the econometric side as well. Uh, and then obviously uh, upgrading the labor market in their reaction function and downgrading inflation, which means they're going to be at this policy tightening regime for longer. Uh, so going back to the respect to the Fed minutes, there was really three things in there uh, that really caught my attention, uh, which is, you know, kind of a, <laughs> one was a real shot across the bow back at us market participants, which is, you know, an unwarranted easing of financial conditions, especially if driven by a misconception, a misperception by the public uh, of, of the committee's uh, reaction function, dot, 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 you know, basically telling us, you know, look, you guys think we're, you know, going to be easier than we continue to, um, you know, uh, espouse with respect to our forecast. 
uh, we're going to be aggressively pushing back against that all year. Uh, number two, uh, they continue to highlight the fact that uh, their dot plot estimates against again, which of which there is a significant amount of cohesion, a very significant lack of dispersion amongst the forecast uh, for the dots are likely to, for the Fed funds rates likely to end uh, 2023. Uh, you know, they basically called out the fact that those dot plots that 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 lack of cohesion or sorry that that lack of dispersion and then the dots at 5.1 percent per year in 2023 is significantly and notably above market-based uh, policy rate expectations. So again, pushing directly back against the markets who are already starting to implicitly price in uh, this Fed pivot. Not implicitly, it's very explicit uh, at this point if you look at Fed funds futures and euro dollars. And then lastly, uh, just kind of doubling down on what they kind of Powell doubled down on uh, in the in the policy in the in the press conference on on the 14th, uh, which is the fact that the labor market. Uh, remains out of balance and extremely tight. Um, you know, so that, in my perspective, I think it just confirms the fact that we thought the Fed pivoted hawkishly, and I think the rest of the market's kind of getting that memo today. Wow. So I think that's what you said. You know, that upgrading the labor market, downgrading inflation. What do you mean by that? That's that seems a very important. Yeah. So that that's a that's a extremely important uh, phenomenon because what it ultimately means is that the Fed is going to be in what we call this phase one liquidity cycle downturn. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show or new to, to how we think about the, this bear market at 42 macro, uh, you know, we've been thinking about recessionary bear markets, of which this one is likely to be a recessionary bear market. Uh, they always have two phases. The first phase is the, what we call the liquidity cycle downturn, uh, effectively where the Fed and other global central banks are removing the punch bowl to combat inflation. Uh, the second phase of the bear market, and the one we have yet to even begin pricing in at, at all, <laughs> in our opinion, uh, at least not in the opinion of the data, rather, uh, is the phase two uh, credit cycle portion. Uh, the phase two credit cycle portion is obviously function of or declining earnings, declining cash flows, and ultimately rising credit risk uh, that we uh, you typically see in the market. Um, but the issue with respect to the Fed upgrading in the labor market, the labor market is always the last thing to break in the business cycle. Um, you know, either you have times in various business cycles where you could see inflation dissipate uh, in advance of recession, particularly from a headline perspective. You tend not to see a significant breakdown in core inflation uh, outside of recessionary conditions. Um, and so that's uh, that's one thing that's ahead of us there. Um, as it relates to the labor market, I actually sent a few charts to you, Brian, if you don't mind, put them up, uh, starting with the slide 19, which is the first chart. Uh, again, these charts came from our uh, December macro scouting report, which was effectively presaging everything we heard out of Jay Powell and the FOMC uh, in December and obviously today with these Fed minutes. So starting with chart 19, uh, we show that the post-COVID reduction in labor supply appears permanent. And what I mean by that is that we've seen this pretty significant decline uh, in the labor force, uh, particularly from a labor force position rate perspective, which is the first panel in this chart, uh, whether you look at slice and dice it across different cohorts, uh, which is labor force participation rate uh, for 55-year-olds uh, plus for women and for uh, the prime working age population, which is 25 to 54-year-olds. And as you can see, on an aggregate basis, you're down about 130 basis points from the perspective of the labor force. Uh, the Fed's own estimates suggest that the labor force is about 3 million people shy of where it should be. Uh, we've done the math, and it looks like it's closer to five or six million people where it should be relative to the pre-COVID trend and the trend that we've established in the post-GFC era. So somewhere between three and six million people are effectively vanished from the labor force. I have a, a bunch of hypotheses on that. Um, but I don't think it's, it's an appropriate medium for that because it could take up the whole show. Uh, the second chart, uh, which is uh, Brian on slide 20, where we go, uh, where we show the, the demand for labor uh, is proving resilient. Um, and what I mean by the demand for labor is proven resilient. We continue to see uh, job growth and, and really, more importantly, aggregate labor's income with respect to the private sector. Um, the chart on the left just shows our, our measure 
of private sector labor income, which is the fourth cluster of bars there at 6.6%, which itself is the productization of the growth in total employment, the growth in, uh, in average hourly earnings, and ultimately the growth in weekly hours worked. Um, and, and, you know, I know there's a, there's a you know, kind of zero hedge S view out there that the, late, the total employment hasn't really grown in the last kind of six to nine months. Um, so what we're taking there in terms of total employment growth uh, is just the mean of the household and establishment surveys uh, to keep our to keep our tip our caps to both the economic bulls and the economic bears. But I don't even think that matters. If you turn your to the chart on the right, the first cluster of bars shows the nominal employee compensation data that we get out of the BEA in conjunction with the PCE report. And as you can see on a three month annualized rate of change basis as well, that's accelerating to 6.1%. So no matter how you slice it, dice it, the total amount of income us consumers are receiving from the labor market, uh, particularly from the private se sector side of the labor market, of which it's you know the lion's share of, of, of total employment, um, you know, we're tracking around 6% or even north of 6%, which is basically a double relative to where we were uh, in the pre-COVID trend. And then the last chart I'll highlight on this, uh, Brian, is slide 21. Uh, we got this data out of the, um, the JOLTS report uh, this morning. Uh, the first panel in this chart just shows total job openings uh, divided by total unemployed workers in the U.S. at 1.7, that ratio is you know more than double you know the pre-COVID trend. So we got a problem, sorry, roughly double the pre-COVID trend. So we got a problem there. It's really not budging, um, certainly not at the speed that the Fed needs it to break down in order for it to receive, quote, substantially more evidence that inflation is returning back to, quote, their 2% target, which they continue to reiterate uh, in the Fed minutes today. And then lastly, in terms of um, in terms of the data we got today, you got the quits rate uh, data, which is the middle panel on this chart, ticks back up to 3%. 2.9%. Obviously, 3% is still well north of that pre-COVID trend. So it continues to tell you that this is a labor market that is either tight, very tight, extremely tight, you know, out of whack, out of balance, like uh, Powell's continued to cite, or it's actually getting more out of balance and more tight. Um, and we can see that as evidenced by the bottom panel there, uh, which is the uh, the employment cost index for the private sector. Data is a little bit lagged um, in terms of the 3Q, but on a quarter over quarter SAR basis, that's at 4.2%. That's a double the pre-COVID trend. So we got problems because again, Labor dynamics are running more hot than the, um, the inflation dynamics right now. And the Fed is pivoting its focus from inflation dynamics, which are starting to cool a little bit, mm -hmm. particularly from a headline perspective, to things that are not cooling and are unlikely to cool unless we go into a recession. Yeah, that's a, that that answers the question we started the show with. What is it going to take for them to pause? Um, and you, you're telling us and they're telling us that it's the labor market. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Interesting, when we were looking at your charts, when you were talking about the fact that demand is still resilient and the labor market's really tight, some people have been looking at that and saying, well, you know, look at that. That means the economy's stronger than people think, and maybe all this talk of recession is overdone. But is it a is it is it a kind of timing issue here? Is that true, or is it just that they are going to go until they break the labor market, and that is when we will see some of the real pain? That's exactly the problem. If this was a Federal Reserve that was comfortable with the pace of growth in the labor market from an aggregate income perspective, or was comfortable with the level of inflation that we continue to observe on a compounded basis, three month annualized, for instance, every single measure of underlying inflation, median CPI 
from mean CPI, sticky CPI, from mean PCE, <laughs> all those measures of underlying inflation are actually still tracking in the 5 to 7% range three-month annualized. If the Fed was comfortable with that, this would be, I mean, you wouldn't be able to buy enough stocks. You wouldn't be able to buy enough Bitcoin, crypto, or risk assets broadly because the Fed is effectively allowing nominal income, nominal GDP, nominal everything to go straight up through the roof. The problem with, from an asset market and capital allocator perspective is, is really twofold. One, the Fed is preventing that um, by tightening policy and continuing to pull to drain the, the punch bowl, the gigantic punch bowl that they uh, filled up, you know, kind of in 2020 and 2021. Um, so that's an, a problem in and of itself. But uh, more and also a bigger problem is the fact that we continue to deal with, you know, very robust valuations. You know, this is a market, stock market, if you look at the S&P 500, that is still very overvalued on a price to the next 12-month earnings basis or price to sales basis relative to any point in time in history where we had, you know, policy rate, uh, policy rates in anywhere in the fours to five percent range. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's just preposterous how overvalued the market is relative to uh, the, the cost of capital out there. So ultimately, we still think asset markets are in for a world of pain in 2023. Yeah. And this is, you know, if the Fed is going to have to keep being aggressive to get that that labor market and that's what they're focused on, I presume that's why you think we've got phase two to come, that credit mm -hmm. deterioration and hit. Um, that yeah. you don't think has happened yet, right? No, I mean, look, we, I mean, you know, we talked about this on the program uh, several times throughout the year, which is, you know, you know, there's there's a view, and, and I certainly tip my cap to Raul because he sort of altered this view uh, going back to the the summertime. Uh, I disagree with the view respectfully, uh, which is that the market had already priced in a recession. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think he was using uh, sort of the year-over-year -year rate of change of various indicate market indicators relative to the PMIs, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that was correct. The market had priced in a low 40s PMI, and that's exactly where we're headed, obviously, you know, looking at this morning's data. Uh, the problem is, is that that's the good side of the economy. The good sector is notoriously volatile. We're obviously dealing with the bullwhip effect from the, uh, the, the pandemic stimulus and the reopening and all that stuff associated with it. And so we're now, you know, kind of in a good cycle downturn globally. And we can see most major economies and PMIs in the 40s presaging, you know, kind of negative industrial production growth uh, in subsequent months. The problem, again, going back to the liquidity cycle downturn that we are still very much mired in, is that the services side of the economy, in most developed economies, it's you know 90% of GDP, 90% of employment for the most part. Um, the services side of the economy continues to run gangbusters. It's very hot. Um, we continue to get data, both from the labor market and otherwise, that continues to support that, hey, look, demand in the US economy and demand abroad in a lot of these other economies that are struggling with above trend, well above trend core inflation is running too hot relative to the observed level of labor supply. Going back to that first chart we showed, slide 19, which is, look, we have a significant reduction in labor supply, so we need companies to stop trying to hire people. But guess what? I run a business, you know, Raul runs a business. You wanna make money when you run a business. So as long as, you know, you can finance yourself and try to, you know, um, you know expand, you're gonna do that. And so ultimately the Fed has to basically continue to, you know, roll up the newspaper and tap us on the, on the nose like we're puppies and tell us not to, to tell us to stop hiring. And ultimately you're starting to see some cracks, Salesforce for instance, but ultimately we just yeah. haven't seen enough. That Salesforce out now. No, but to your point, I mean, I think anecdotally all of us feel it. Anybody who went out over the holidays, you know, there's still not enough staff in restaurants. The demand is, and everyone's frustrated, but this is the worry, you know, that, that it, it, if you're a business owner, you can't say, well, I can't, I'm not going to service my customers because I think a recession's coming. You only can deal with what you can deal with in your reality and what you see. And that is that, you know, people are lined up out the door waiting to yeah. get stuff. It, you, you bring up a really important point, I think, Darius, that, that this, this push and pull, though, between these camps about recession and really importantly, inflation. And we hear it and we try to present all views so that 
you know, people can hear both sides. Um, and we do hear a really wide range of opinions from people coming on. Um, one of them I spoke with recently, um, we had on air is Ms. Schneider from Market Gage, who really kind of gave voice to those who think and are concerned about inflation remaining elevated. Let's have a listen to that clip. Well, there are certainly aspects of inflation that have probably peaked because inflation was definitely something that was a bizarre event happening post-COVID with the world finding itself with a shortage of labor, a shortage of supply, supply chain issues, and essentially product and particularly raw materials. But a lot of that with the Fed tightening has dissipated. However, the type of inflation that I expect to see in 2023 is going to be based on something very different. And it's going to be on more, I really sort of shudder to use the word chaos, but more chaotic situation as sovereigns have to scramble to try to avoid deep recessions. We have geopolitical issues all around the world. And the central banks lost a lot of credibility this year because they tightened too fast, too late, and whether or not they pivot because they have to uh, and the decision they'll have to make. That's why we think Basically, what we're saying is we're looking for inflation in all the wrong places, and we think it can get really, really ugly in certain areas for 2023. Uh, that full interview is available on our platform. Uh, Brian's going to drop a link in the chat on YouTube. Uh, if you want to hit it, you can get access to it. So... Um, so, uh, you know, she's not the only one, Darius. And I think this is this idea, whether it's service led, whether it's coming from structural things happening in commodities. In fact, we had a comment or a question uh, from one of our viewers right now, um, IR Impossible. So shortage of energy or labor equals need for hawkier Fed. <laughs> I like that, IR, hawkier Fed. Um, but that is that is the argument. Um, but then on the other side, you have folks like Andreas Stanislav Larson, who tweeted out just today, European, I think we can pull it up, European inflation peaked. Um, and he's going to do a deep dive, by the way, into that view on the on his new show, which is debuting tomorrow called Steno Signals. Um, but there are people who are looking at things like that, looking at the IMS prices paid and saying, you know, OK, I know it doesn't look like it now, but we are going to see this deceleration in inflation. How do we square these two camps when people feel so convicted about this? Yeah, well, I think that the number one thing we're all learning, not we are all learning because I've known this for a while, but I think a lot of investors are learning is that inflation is not this monolithic basket. You know, yeah. we can treat it like a monolithic basket when inflation's, you know, at the target around 2% and it, you know, goes from one to three basically in, in these in these cycles. But now we're going from zero to 10 and there's a lot more fluctuation, a lot more puts and takes. Um, you know, I think the Fed has done an excellent job this year or in this past year of really kind of helping investors, helping the market participants like myself, really focus on what they care about and their reaction function with respect to their guidance. I mean, the, Jay Powell has been extremely explicit all year about the things that the Fed cares about and the things that the Fed doesn't care about. For instance, like rent uh, and rental inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, or, you know, year over year time series at this point, you know, it's kind of noise at this point. Um, the Fed has been very explicit about cons being concerned about the labor market and how that's contributing to services sector inflation. Again, we're, you know, we got services, um, you know, they're one of their preferred metrics or one of their elevated metrics in this in this recent hawkish pivot um, going back to early December um, is this core services PCE inflation. Um, if you uh, you subtract housing out of that out of that metric and we're still compounding at four five point percent on a three month annualized basis. You know, like everyone keeps talking about the basis effects are going to drive inflation down. The basis effects are going to drive inflation down. Guess what? The basis effects aren't going to do jack 
you know, for lack of a better word, poop. <laughs> yeah. If, the, if you keep compounding sequentially at the level that could create 5.6% inflation, and that is the problem because the labor market is too tight, nominal income growth is too, too high, and companies have too much cash and they just keep trying to expand, and that's an issue. I want to get a, a, a reaction to a couple of other things um, that were tweeted out uh, by some friends of the show um, as well. One of them was um, Jim Bianco, who was pointing out um, just at the start of the year, if you look at nominal bond returns for last year, I think he said it was the worst in 230 years. We know bonds were a big issue um, and a real source of pain uh, for people last year. Is it safe to go back in the water? Does it feel like 2023 is... I don't know if I want to say a better year, but a return to something that looks more familiar to people. Uh, so the iron set question has been pretty consistent for the past few months, uh, really throughout the second half of the year, uh, which is, you know, as long as we are stuck in this phase one liquidity cycle downturn, bonds are not, they're, they're a sell. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at the bare minimum, they're not, they're not a buy until you get a lot closer until the market is comfortable beginning to price in that phase two credit cycle downturn. Um, if you, you know, we've talked about this in the program, you know, it's our belief that U.S. economy has some juice. It's got some resiliency to it, um, as obvious, obviously evidenced by the, you know, the uptick in GDP that we saw in the second half of the year. Uh, but more importantly, by this continued thrust in income growth, uh, you have nominal and real income growth accelerating right now. And in an economy that has two thirds, uh, that's, you know, two thirds consumption or really roughly 70 percent consumption, um, that's an issue from the perspective of the resiliency of the economy and contributing to resilient uh, inflation. Um, so ultimately, you know, we do believe that bonds are a buy at some point in 2023. It just might be a buy from a lower price at a higher yield, uh, just given the fact that we got a tremendous amount of supply coming on both from the sovereigns themselves, but also from foreign central bank or from, you know, from, from central bank balance sheets. Um, and ultimately, you might have to get, you know, way through that, that murky water as a fixed income investor in the first part of this year. Because again, why would you rally a bond if the Fed is telling you they're not going to cut interest rates for, you know, by their standards, a really long period of time heading into an economic downturn um, if they're still going to be, you know, dumping supply on the market. I, I just think it's a very, I don't know, arrogant trade, <laughs> to, for yeah. lack of a better word. I think this is really important. This is where you really need to listen to the camps and kind of look at your own viewpoint and your time horizon and figure out if it makes sense. Because I heard a bunch of people on TV today recommending bonds, and I was like, that's a big call. Wait a minute. Let me think about this. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, Trevor L. asking, when are you going to go risk on, Darius? Not until 2024, question mark. I already know the answer to this. It's probably when your indicators tell you, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, look, it, when you're trying to find the bottom bear market, we've done extensive research on this subject matter. Um, you know, there have been 17 bear markets in the past 100 years, uh, beginning with Act 1 of the Great Depression. And on a median basis, they, they bottom, they inflect when the Fed inflects. And so you're talking about a, a Fed that's likely to pivot at some point in time in, in, the, in the second half of this year. Now, will we be at the bottom of the credit cycle downturn at that particular juncture? Maybe, maybe not. I think you need to be, um, you don't have to be, sorry, you don't have to be at the bottom of the credit cycle downturn, but you certainly need to be well on the way to pricing one in. And if we're not well on the way to pricing one in, then I'm not so sure the markets are going to bottom. This will look a lot more like 
2007 to 2009 or 2000 to 2002, really 2003, if you think about the March retest. Um, so there's two types of bear markets. There's one where Fed panics and the market keeps going down. And there's most of the time, however, on a median basis, going back to that sample, the markets tend to bottom coincident or shortly after uh, the Fed, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, inflects its reaction function. So it's very likely we see a bottom at some point uh, in 2023. Uh, and more importantly, it's also likely we see a big rally in bonds in 2023. I'm just not ready to buy bonds and certainly not ready to buy risk assets ahead of what should be a material repricing in an asset market. Yeah, and timing these can be really difficult. And I, I know that so many of you well, came on last for. year. Really, it's, it's painful. And Warren, that you get you it, within these bear markets, you can get powerful moves, but it doesn't mean it's over. And to that point, Brent Donnelly's uh, one. He tweeted something that caught my eye today, saying, "Pain trade day today. Uh, GS most short uh, fund um, backed up cross GPY ripping oil down. All the favorite trades." are getting smoked today. It sounds like it's still a really tricky market to navigate. Yeah, well, so, I mean, so something we called out in our research um, earlier this morning, but it's kind of faded. And part of the reason it faded is because of the Fed minutes. Because yeah. again, you, you know, the market, there's a lot of liquidity on the sideline, right? We all know that the reverse yield facility balance is north of $2 trillion that's waiting to be put to work at any given time. So there's, there's ample dry powder out there on the sideline to rally risk. The problem is we are waiting as invest as an investor community for the Fed to get the hell out of the way and, and the ECB to get the hell out of the way and the Bank of England to get the hell out of the way. And, and oh, by the way, for China to get the heck out of the way. We haven't even talked about China yet, but by the way, the PBOC has been tightening to defend the yuan. And you know, we're obviously seeing that uh, way uh, pretty, pretty substantial in Chinese growth uh, on top of obviously community transmission of COVID. So um, you know, we just it's just a very murky picture to be trying to allocate risk. And, and more importantly, what complicates that picture, particularly for institutional investors, you know, which have mandates and investment committees and, and ultimately, you know, fiduciary standards to the investments that they make, asset markets are still pretty rel richly valued. Uh, not only richly valued relative to their longer term time series, but richly valued relative to the fact that we're now dating our new girlfriend, Tara. You know, we were dating Tina for a long time, you know, and then we kicked her to the curb and now we're dating Tara, which is there are reasonable alternatives, particularly on the short end of the fixed income space. And as long as there are reasonable alternatives, the cost of capital, the hurdle rate for every trade you make is going to be much difficult, which keeps the pressure, the selling pressure, the lid over the top of the market. I like that. I like I like we have a new acronym that we're going to have to torture ourselves about. Let, I do want to, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about China because you had a, a chart, I think one more chart that we've got. Um, about the kind of relationship with the U.S. and China, um, do you see changes coming to China? I mean, they're tightening, but gosh, they—they they, one would imagine they'd like to be supporting their economy a little bit more. What, what do we? Is there something we need to be watching on that? Yeah, the number thing I'm watching is for any headlines and inclinations that China is going to go big on fiscal stimulus, because there have been these times in, in you know the, in modern you know economic history where China has had the ability to bail out the global economy all by its lonesome. Uh, we've seen that in, you know, kind of 2008 heading into 2009. Uh, we've seen that kind of in 2015, or sorry, 2016 heading into 2017. Uh, we saw that kind of in the spring of 2020 as well in terms of the easing that we saw uh, out of the PBOC um, in conjunction with some of the fiscal stimulus initiatives that they had. Um, but right now, if you look at slide 46, Brian, if you put that slide up, you know, what I'm showing in this chart on the top panel is three months shy, but as a catch-all all the different policy measures that the PBOC uses to manage monetary policy in China. They have like an alphabet soup of things that they do on a regular basis. So, you know, trying to track them all is you, you, you sort of, you need, you need, you lose a lot of sleep trying to track them all. So we use the, 
three month shy bar is sort of the catch all because again, most credit, uh, most private non financial sector credit in China is on bank balance sheet, right around 83%. Um, the red line shows the, um, the credit impulse and the dotted line show the inflections uh, to the downside in the credit impulse. Credit impulse, by the way, leads Chinese growth by one or two quarters. And so we've, we've inflected to the downside going back uh, to this you know, middle part of last year and have been trending lower since from a credit impulse perspective, because again, we're now really starting to, to tighten to support that yuan. Now the dollar has gone down a significant amount since you know, kind of the October highs that is observed. And so ultimately we're gonna start to see the PBOC you know, kind of um, you know, take its foot off the brake a little bit and maybe step on the gas pedal. But again, stepping on the ga- tapping on the gas pedal versus stepping on the gas pedal, in my opinion, are two very different things. There will be a positive shock to global economic demand associated with the Chinese, you know, the relaxation of zero COVID, you know, starting really in January. Uh, we're already starting to see mobility data pick up relative to December. The issue is, is that positive, there's really multiple issues. I'd say the two biggest issues relative to, you know, trying to put uh, capital to work in financial markets is, is the magnitude and duration of that positive shock going to be enough to overcome all of the incremental policy tightening we're going to get out of the Fed, ECB, maybe even the Bank of Japan this year? And I'm not so sure what the answer to that is. We need to see a lot of stimulus out of China to overcome all those headwinds from a, from a liquidity cycle standpoint. Uh, and then two, if China steps on it too hard, do they start to reinflate commodity prices and yeah. put a lot of pressure on global supply chains to the point where we're now dealing with more goods inflation at the same time we have sticky late, late cycle services inflation and ultimately more employment that's broadly uh, more demand for labor um, as a function of incremental Chinese demand. I'm not so sure I know the answers yet, but yeah. I do know where we're headed by the end of this year, which is a global recession that has yet to be priced in. Yeah, and that's that's that sort of seesaw balance that when you're talking about walking that fine line, you know, it, it, when you're trying to sort of figure out the implications of of a Chinese policy move like that. Um, we're getting a lot of love for your shirt, Darius. Uh, Paul saying, are you sending us a closet a full of these? Should I start wearing them? Sending a subtle, subtle message with your shirt that we should be ready in the second quarter, springtime, flowers and growth, green shoots. Anybody remember that? We used to talk about that back in the day. Um, but, I got, but very I got, seriously, I got a funny I hear... tidbit since, uh, since, you know, it's January, we're having a good time. Exactly. Uh, I, when I met my fiance, uh, I met her, uh, we met on like hinge and I showed up to the date in January in, in the city in New York, it's, you know, probably like 20 degrees outside, uh, in one of these shirts. And then I showed up to the second date on one of these in one of these shirts. She thought I had only one shirt for like several months. But the answer is no. I have a closet full of these. I mean, I'm just a swaggy guy. A swaggy guy. We're seeing we're seeing another side of Darius. I love that story, um, and I love that she loved your fashion sense, Darius. I don't know if she loves it. She just has to eat it. <laughs> um, so um, so you know, I hate to sort of t- turn the tone, but you're. You're pretty bearish. I mean, if I'm sort of listening to everything you say, um, this recession, as you just mentioned, not priced in. We're in the sixth inning. I think you mentioned the focus has to be on the labor market, less about goods inflation, more about services, more about a tight labor market. Take the Fed at their word for now. Uh, That's going to be where their focus is. And there are imbalances that are going to mean that they are going to continue to be aggressive. Um, And that second phase, that credit cycle phase, where we see earnings deterioration, that's still out there. So it's going to be very tough sledding for risk assets, for um, stocks, and you wouldn't be a buyer of, it's too early to be a buyer of bonds. So this this is still a rough environment. It's still a short risk parity environment from my perspective. I think if you go back to prior to that December 14th Fed pivot, because again, that was a Fed pivot. I don't think, I haven't heard anybody say it besides me, but if you look at what happened, 
you know, they basically trend, they, they shifted the things that they care about, which incremented, made them incrementally more hawkish. Everyone was focused on the step down to, to 25 basis points from 50 or from 75 to 25 to 50 to 25. But the reality is they're going to be doing more 25s than what's currently priced in the market. Um, you know, I think the market has them getting up to five and a quarter uh, in terms of the Fed funds rate, ultimately pivoting back to 4.75 by the end of this year. Those two great cuts aren't coming. So that's 50 basis points there. And maybe it's five, 5.5 or 5.75. Ultimately, you might get an incremental additional 100 basis points of policy rate tightening by the Fed relative to current market expectations this year because they've shifted their reaction function. Uh, and I'd also like to clarify, you, you could have gone back to prior to that Fed pivot in December 14th and, and really thought there was going to be a credible window for risk to really rally and kind of squeeze consensus positionings. You know, that window still exists. I just think it's a lot shorter. And how the window would have worked, which is if the Fed was content to continue uh, anchoring on inflation as the primary driver of its reaction function, we and more importantly, had maintained that clear and convincing evidentiary standard as opposed to upgrading its evidentiary standard to substantially more evidence, which also uh, was part of that pivot as well. We could have gotten to a situation where February 1st was the last rate hike. Mm-hmm. And February 1st, the last rate hike in the context of the ECB and Bank of England, et cetera, still tightening. You're going to see the dollar gets smoked as China reopens, growth picks up, and ultimately consensus short positioning across risk parity type, you know, type investments uh, would really gotten squeezed. And it may still happen. I just think that window of time for you to sort of be done with pricing in phase one, the liquidity cycle downturn, and ultimately having to start to price in phase two, the credit cycle downturn, that window has compressed. And that's why I sound so bearish, because again, I think you're just you got to be a cowboy if you really want to bet on that 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 upside risk, that that right tail risk in that window. And I just yeah. don't think that window is wide enough anymore uh, to really be um, to really, you know, to be a fiduciary and actually put that type of money to work. Yeah, it makes sense. And I understand you're you're calling it a hawkish pivot. I understand they're moving the goalposts is what they you're did saying. Move the yeah, they're moving the goalposts mm-hmm. and finding a reason and explaining their reason for being hawkish. So if you were pinned mm-hmm. on inflation, turn your attention elsewhere, which we're certainly going to do this Friday when we get the jobs report. Darius, it was fantastic to see you as we Likewise. kick off this new year. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Andreas will be back tomorrow with George Goncalves. Until then, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.